welcome to the Hudson Institute, all of you, and also welcome to our online viewers. Uh, this is streamed live. Uh, and for those of you who aren't familiar with, with Hudson, and there may be a few more uh, of you than, than uh, usual, uh, the Hudson Institute was very much founded on the conviction that strong, fully engaged U.S. leadership is the indispensable prerequisite for the preservation of global security and human rights. And the relevance of such a notion requires no elaboration these days, given uh, what's going on in various fronts in the world. This particular event is put on by Hudson's Kleptocracy Initiative, uh, and I'm Charles Davidson, its executive director. And uh, we founded this, my wife and I, Julie, who directs the operations of the initiative, uh, founded this on the premise that kleptocratic regimes are a threat to our security and to freedom and democracy more generally. Our event today will focus on how kleptocratic wealth has infiltrated one of the West's leading capitals, London namely, and threatens seriously to undermine UK politics. Of course, go beyond that, we think there's perhaps some applicability to the US and other places in the world, too. So we have with us, uh, and I'll, I'll refer to them by their first name since you have on the program the bios and all that. Uh, so we have Natalie, uh, who's an a, uh, extremely eminent, up-and-coming Ukrainian investigative journalist. Roman on the end, uh, who is the character in this uh, it plays the uh, character of Boris in this film from Russia with Cash, which we are going to refer to. Uh, ben Judah, uh, who uh, provided a lot of, much of the idea, as I understand it, for the film, etc. And then Karen Duisha, who is familiar to Hudson audiences, who is going to moderate this discussion. Karen being the author of Putin's Kleptocracy, as you uh, see in the program. And this event is, in fact, part of three days that the team that made From Russia with Cash will spend in D.C. So we hope you'll join us tomorrow, 3 p.m., at the museum for the premiere of uh, the U.S. premiere of From Russia with Cash. Uh, and let me, uh, yeah, so that's, it's, it'll be very easy to find. It's in, I think, the. Um, night conference center or something like that at the museum tomorrow 3 p.m. So please tell all your friends about it. Uh, it's a big room and it's expandable, so we uh, hope to have a lot of people there. Uh, now, Ben Judah we've known for a while, but uh, Roman and Natalie we met uh, after, the, uh, after this film was done from Russia with Cash. And just in a nutshell, in it, uh, Roman plays Boris, who's a corrupt Russian government official. And Natalie pay, plays Nastya, his Ukrainian uh, mistress. And so they're playing real roles, but it's, it's a sting operation eventually. Now, they'll explain this during the uh, course of this event a little bit, although this isn't gonna, going to be so much a discussion of the film as of the policy implications of what they've done. So... In a, in a sense, they're not just experts, although they, they play that role in their lives too, but they've put themselves on the front lines of fighting kleptocracy, as we've entitled this event. And each of them, and this includes Karen, in some way has risked 
well-being uh, in this fight against corruption. I mean, this is sort of a, a risky business when you take on kleptocrats, and uh, including Karen, who, whose book Putin's Kleptocracy nearly required hand-to-hand combat to get published. That's, that's a whole story. All of our guests have a deep understanding of how the actions of corrupt governments are influencing and changing the West, not for the better. They not only import money, they import corruption. And they know what stealing money does to a country and their people. We shouldn't fool ourselves that everyday Ukrainians don't know their money is invested in London and U.S. real estate. They do and they're very conscious of it, as Natalie will confirm. This is not building strong, positive feelings toward the West at a time when we need a united front. So I'd like to thank Julie, uh, and I'll turn this over to Karen. Julie Davidson in particular, who conceived of these three days and has uh, managed this all from A to Z, as well as our uh, staff, Liv, Peter, and Drew Young, whom some of you may have met in the course of uh, the organization of all this. So once again, I hope you'll join us tomorrow, 3 p.m., at the museum for the U.S. premiere of the film, and I'll turn it now over to Karen. Thank you. Thank you very much, Charles. And thank you for all the great work that the Cryptocracy Initiative's doing. It's very, very important stuff. You know, I hope you'll come tomorrow uh, to the showing of this film. I watched it um, in an unauthorized version on YouTube the day before it was taken down. Um, and it's, it's a very small story. It's very, it's very specific. It's about two people who are deeply in love in different kinds of ways, I would say, (laughs) who want to buy an apartment in London. And so it's a small story, but it's actually extremely amusing, (laughs) very well acted, um, and it tells a much bigger story. And this is the story that is important, not just for London. If only it were so. It is very important for us in Washington for us in the West to understand that while we thought that the, our efforts to bring Russia into the global world would reap the benefits over time of them seeing this as a project of gradually establishing in Russia the rule of law system that we admire and live by, believe we live by, instead what is happening is that the level of corruption in Russia and its enabling in the West is flooding over us. It is taking hold of our institutions. There are too many people in our banks, in our real estate companies, in, in, in our law firms, in our lobbying firms, who are quite happy to take accounts from Russians from Ukrainians, from Kazakhs, and from many other countries, of course, and to turn a blind eye because it's an account. It's a client. It's a, it's a purchase. And this, this so when, when we think about it, and that's what we're going to talk about today, 
when we think about this, we want to enjoy the film, but think about it in very, very big terms. Because why it's important is that this isn't, it's a, it's a, it's a small story about a very big idea that our economies, our societies, our ethics are being completely and utterly overridden by these corrupt practices. And the corrupt practices don't stop at the water's edge. They're not just in London. They're not just in the United States. And they're not just from Russia. They're not just from Ukraine. All of these uh, officials are using laws that were set up to embed the interests of our own uh, ultra-rich. And if that weren't the case, we wouldn't have those laws. No one is lobbying for the Russian government to say, you know, the Russian government or Yanukovych has called me today and he needs this law. No, this is being done to serve the interests of our <coughs> ultra-rich. And we all know that this is a problem that we need to do something about. So with that as a, a uh, starting idea, I'll turn first to Natalie Sadetska. Thank you um, for having me here and um, uh, having an opportunity to be heard um, and also excuse uh, for my weak English. <laughs> um, I, you know, it, it's no matter it's Ukraine, Russia, Kazakhstan, but let me put uh, my country, my home country, Ukraine, as an example um, of a country which uh, nation has put so much effort to counterpart and overcome the kleptocracy and corruption with the with the help of the U.S. Some, sometimes. Um, so the revolution in 2013-2014 uh, in Ukraine <coughs> was against corruption uh, mostly. And uh, of course it was pro-European, but it all comes together. Um, and uh, it freaked out Russia, the invasion started. Um, a lot of attention lately were paid uh, to the fighting on the east of Ukraine, to Crimea. Um, but we as a journalist and activists realized uh, how important it is to continue to fight uh, our internal corruption as uh, it is something that ruins our country for the last uh, few decades uh, the most. Um, now, Ukrainians want to join the EU. Ukrainians want to share uh, the Western values. But what we see sometimes is that the West uh, is helping the Ukrainian corruption to grow um, by the help of financial system, of the lobbyists in the West, and uh, even some think tanks, and, and, and with the help of real estate and lawyers and so on. Um, look at our Ukrainian oligarchs. Ten years ago, they gained uh, their fortune um, and by committing crime sometimes by using the schemes and methods of mafia, um, by um, unfair privatization um, and uh, raider schemes and closeness to the government. Um, then they invested money in those parties, political parties who are, were in the government, and they continue to do it now. Um, moreover, they come to Western countries like the United Kingdom or, or the United States um, who do a few things. First, to spend their money in a, a Western society to live nice, um, high <coughs> life here, um, but also to build a parallel reality for themselves and about themselves. Um, and how they do it, uh, they, usually they buy influence. Um, they 
hire lords and lawyers, um, they um, hire politicians and bankers. That's how they become clean in the eyes of, uh, the, of the West, but uh, this is not true. Um, again, they keep supporting corrupted Ukrainian officials with their money to, um, uh, to, to, to keep uh, doing the same thing. Um, we have, for now, weak law enforcement agencies and, and institutions, um, um, which are now are being in transistent mode. Um, and these institutions are unable to punish uh, corrupted officials in, within, the, within the country, for now. So some say even the journalists and investigative journalists are doing their job, which is uh, n not the way it should be. Uh, but this is true, and then activists are uh, pushing for changes, and this is what helps. Um, but on the other hand, Ukrainian government is applying for a financial aid, for, let's say from IMF, um, from European institutions, and um, it covers these holes which uh, are made in budget by partially because of uh, their kleptocracy nature. So uh, two things um, to, to think about here. Um, one is that probably the Western institutions and Western countries have to probably look at themselves too and uh, in order to make uh, decisions made uh, to make it harder uh, for dirty money to enter your society and your political establishment. And um, also the West and the US, what, what, what can help with is to push countries like Ukraine to cooperate on investigations and find dirty money and help with assets recovery. Thank you very much. Roman, you want to go next? Well, yes, thank you, Natalie, for delivering uh, this great perspective from, from Ukraine. I would uh, try to address it from uh, more from the UK perspective. Um, the uh, phenomena that we were trying to reveal in, uh, by secretly filming is how easy it is for uh, stolen money, for proceeds of crime, to enter the United Kingdom through offshore companies. The uh, key point here, which is uh, uh, something that we uh, did not hope for, but when, when it w was achieved, it uh, was mind-boggling, is that five out of five, our um, well-known high street um, real estate brokerages have recommended that uh, my character, corrupt Russian um, healthcare official, would take his stolen money and put it into an offshore company and bring them into the UK through an anonymous offshore company. One of our anti-heroes anti told us that uh, in this case, if you do this, then not only the Russian government, our government would not know whose money is it. And this is exactly the uh, something that we wanted to reveal, we wanted to show that, I mean, England at this stage is already uh, having first-hand uh, uh, effect of, of uh, these foreign uh, stolen money coming into the, um, into the uh, real estate se uh, sector. The uh, economic crime commander, Donald Toome, whom we interview for our film, has put the uh, totality of uh, the flows that come into England, in the, into the British um, real estate segment per year, in hundreds of billions of pounds. Now that could not have not, uh, could not, uh, not affected the uh, property prices. So, so the prices in central London are artificially skewed 
by foreign uh, inflows, most of which is, seems to be money uh, coming from corruption. That is why the uh, uh, film had such a huge resonance in, uh, in the UK. Uh, we had uh, we started a political campaign right uh, the day after the uh, uh, premiere the premiere of the film on Channel Four, and the goal of this political campaign is to change the legislation in a way that anonymous ownership, not for uh, forward-looking purchases, but ownership of uh, properties and other assets through anonymous offshore companies would be disallowed. And the UK would, in, in, in uh, the real estate segment, the UK would go to the level of transparency required for any other company doing regular business in, in the UK, where your you know, uh, ultimate beneficial owners are revealed. That campaign has gained momentum quickly, and less than three weeks from uh, the date that the film was uh, aired, uh, the Prime Minister, speaking in Singapore, addressed the issue and promised to take measures to prevent money laundering in UK property. We, until we by now, have been joined by uh, 18 major NGOs in our campaign. Very well-known names like One, like Open, Co Open Corporates, Transparency International, Global Witness, ActionAid, Save the Children, Oxfam, uh, Kafod, etc., etc. These are very well-respected NGOs that are pulling their resources behind us, trying to uh, make sure that the legislation is changed in a way that it will prohibit this kind of proceeds of crime flowing into the UK. Well, that's my brief from the UK. Thank you, Roman. Then Judah. So there you have it. A rather unsettling verdict. Two of the bravest activists of their generation from Russia and Ukraine coming to Washington to say Western financial institutions have been perverted in these aspects so they are undermining Western soft power. I know soft power is a very popular topic in Washington, but seen from Kiev and seen from Moscow, and I can assure you they're much ruder in private, uh, Western soft power is being undermined by the existence of a looting mas machine. So let's, let's start from the beginning. Imagine, I know this is going to be a very horrific experience, so, so just, just calm down before. Imagine you are a member of the Putin cabinet or the Uzbek cabinet, or the recently deposed Yanukovych elite, and you want to do what you do best, which is steal some money. You can steal it from your HIV-AIDS budget, you can steal it from your healthcare budget, you can steal it from your um, road budget. And this isn't a sort of hypothetical little bit of money under the table. People will, <coughs> will die from this. The fact that Russia's and Ukraine's chemotherapy and HIV-AIDS budgets have been destroyed has led to these countries having spiralling rates of HIV-AIDS infection, over 1% of the population in both places. So you've stolen this money. What are you going to do with it? When you steal, it becomes dirty black cash. And if you are going to buy an apartment, your lover, jewellery, a car, or whatever sort of things you want to wear or indulge, you need to turn this into nice white cash. Gosh, what are you going to do? So now imagine you're that Russian or Ukrainian government minister. How do you experience the West? Let's face it, like you don't experience the West through the likes of us every day. You, you're experiencing the West through your lawyer, your banker, your accountant. And who are these people? They're Americans, they're Englishmen, 
they're Frenchmen, they're from the Switzerlands, they're, from, they're representing uh, jurisdictions uh, under British sovereignty or American sovereignty in the Caribbean. So you're surrounded by the enablers. And these people are always around you, and all levels of the elite in your country are being serviced by them, that have got, they can help you turn dirty black cash into nice white cash. What's the easiest way to do it? Because you're sort of a lazy government official, so you want to do the, the quickest route. One of the, the biggest dangers, I feel, for contemporary Western capitalism, which has served the world so well, is that offshore finance has become a zone with, effectively without the rule of law, which is posing very, very serious problems. So you're going to take your dirty black cash and you're going to put it in an offshore jurisdiction. So if you would do a nice map, I'd beam it up behind me, have England, a couple of little islands, remains of the British Empire. It's a bit, it's a bit surrealist to imagine that the money's actually in those dots. The money's not in the Cayman Islands. The money's not in Jersey. The money's not in uh, Sark. The money's actually a sort of second dimension of the money right here, right now. So you put your money in this notional, theoretical place. Now, next step. This is the, the actual act of laundering. And this is where London property has become the Bitcoin for the global kleptocracy. You've arrived in London, and since you placed your money in an offshore uh, holding, you've registered it as a company there, this company can now buy a house, a mansion in London. So all of this money is pouring into London. And the money then transforms into nice white cash. The stolen AIDS budget of uh, your country is now a £25 million mansion in London. And you want the prices to go up and up and up and up and up because it means you can launder more and more money. What has this done to, to London? I just want to give you a sense of scale, which is... There are 37,000 properties in London which are now owned through these mysterious offshore vehicles. And 75% of all the companies uh, being investigated, all the properties being investigated as money laundering devices were, of course, registered in, a, in an offshore holding. That's 2.2 square miles. That's double the size of London's financial district. Just imagine that, that scale there. That's 10% of all the property in central London, and the number is growing every day. So what our campaign did, and I think this is very important in kind of grounding this issue, is, let's face it, corruption is quite complicated, but we managed to take it and through Roman and Natalie allow you to journey with the money, journey with the corruption. And our film, it wasn't really about Russians or Ukrainians. It was actually about Brits. It was about... It was about the British elite and showing people just how willing whole industries have become to launder cash. And in a sense, actively, they are sadly actively working against uh, the, the kind of interests that our government's trying to sort of promote in Russia or Ukraine of, uh, of democracy, uh, let alone, uh, the, let alone the, the rule of law. So all over the world in the past... 15 years, we've seen this kind of this growing crisis, which uh, uh, this growing crisis, and 
Uh, I think corruption is at the heart of it. We've seen a remarkably large amount of states fail in recent years. And the reasons that these states were failing uh, are, of course, various. But one of the key points is that state capture, either in Egypt or in Syria or in Ukraine, was operating through this looting machine in which the elites uh, uh, not only affected state capture, it also led to state collapse. What happened in Ukraine, where you had this state capture? You had an elite that was so rapacious. It wasn't a case of bribes under the table. <coughs> give me a cut here, give me a, ca- give me a cut there. Or something familiar to, sort of, sadly, to American and, and British history. You're looking at the actual theft of the country itself to such an extent that the country collapsed, killing... Uh, 10, 000, almost 10,000 people, wounding 20,000, and resulting in the country having bits bitten off it by Russia and creating an international crisis, uh, uh, tr- taking us to some very dark places with Putin's Russia. And this is going on all over the Middle East and all over Africa. And just this point to end on, to sort of soar into political science, is that in when Britain... <laughs> and France and America became sort of democratised slowly and stably. One of the reasons that this happened is that the elite was frightened of losing its money. The money was in the United States, the money was in Britain, the money was in France, and unless you were sort of going to come to some kind of modus vivendi with the the peasants or with the population, you were going to lose it. The threat of revolution was always there, and the memories of what happened to the rolling heads of uh, British and French uh, monarchs, was live in minds. So the elites slowly, slowly, slowly built responsible government. And in the 21st century, what I think we can see internationally is that that has been broken. That bond has been broken. The Ukrainian elite pillaged Ukraine, conscious that the population revolted. Who cares? Just go to London. Just go to the Cayman Islands, go to Russia. And we have seen that time and time again uh, in state failure in recent years from Africa to, to the Middle East and Eastern Europe. It, right now, you know, Western foreign policy, you don't need me to tell you, is in crisis. And we have really been failing to deal with a lot of systemic uh, problems. It's, it's very difficult to deal with something like ISIS. It's very difficult to deal with Putin's regime. But... Reform of the financial sector in a way that you can prevent it from aiding and abetting autocracy is not an impossible task. Well, we've got some very interesting ideas. You know, it's, it's uh, one of the things that all of you brought up, which I think it's, it's really good to come back to, is this idea that the... Uh, if we can, the Russian or Ukrainian elite, instead of thinking about the future of their own country for the long term, have not had faith in that country and its stability and its future, and so behaved. Indiv- and I will not go into political science here, but we know <laughs> what we're talking about. And instead, behaved to serve their very short-term individualistic and private goals. So instead of becoming a minister of health who will genuinely be interested in the solution of the AIDS problem over time, 
he has a wife, he has a family. Even if he's a good guy uh, and, and wishes the best for his country, he has to think about them. And they are not in the country. This is, this is one thing that is totally unique about Russia and Ukraine, that even their own families, the next generation, have financial interests, property, education, bank accounts abroad. So when, when you're thinking about your obligation as a member of an elite of a country, you're thinking about that in terms of an existential conflict with your personal and private objectives. And those are in conflict because the people whom, whose long-term interests you want to assist are not even part of the future. You don't even see them as part of the future of this country, even though that you may be getting them contracts, they may be opening hotels in Greece that have been bought with stolen funds like uh, uh, Minister Chaika's son and so forth. So you have, instead of people looking at needing to do the hard work of bringing about the, the long-term future of their, their own country, the, these countries are literally being hollowed out. And state institutions, state budgets are being privatized through subsidiary arrangements. So, for example, there was several years ago a terrorist bombing in a Moscow airport, Domodedovo, right? Yeah. We all remember it. Many people died. Medvedev was the president. He called for a meeting with the owners of Domodedovo. It could not be determined who were the owners of an airport in Moscow. It could not be determined. And this meeting was never held because it had been privatized offshore. The, a strategic airport had been privatized offshore. And this is the same that's happening in everything. The St. Petersburg ports, no one really knows who owns the ports of St. Petersburg. Now, on the one hand, you would say, well, that's interesting. Maybe it'll make them more cautious. On the other hand, they are using this money to undermine our own, our own uh, institutions and putting off the date when they care about their own country. So it's a, it's a very dangerous um, problem. And, you know, uh, Natalie, I wanted to ask you about one comment that you made that I thought was very important that the West is using its aid to cover the holes in the Ukrainian budget that has been stolen by Ukrainian kleptocrats. And this is, I think, a big feature of the aid that's constantly being asked for, that we need it because 1% of our, of our population is suffering from AIDS, so we need support from the West to help with AIDS to make sure it's not transmitted, it's in your interest, TB, the story goes on and on. But why is there a hole in these budgets? I mean, do you think that this is something that is absolutely universal? And what would you suggest to be done about it? Um, well, I think this is something that really influenced, for, for example, Americans and their, their own budget. Um, and there is something that can be done. Um, you have uh, your great law enforcement uh, system which can help uh, Ukrainian or Russian or whatever uh, uh, weak country uh, law enforcement to investigate 
uh, how the money are being used and for example those financial aids and there is a talk now between the Ukrainian um, law enforcement and the European Union the uh, European Commission um, and it uh, also involves the FBI uh, detectives uh, they talk about to create the investigative team uh, to look into how this financial aid is being um, um, being spent um, so th this could be one of the receipts one of the um, steps to, to to be taken. So when you're when you're um, so you're living in Ukraine, you're looking for you know long-term future for your own country. You don't have any plans to leave Ukraine. And as in Russia, you know all the young people who are working very hard for the future of their countries, they don't want to be pushed out of their own country. Um, do you feel that? the attitude toward the West has, some, has somewhat changed in light of the increased knowledge of the enablers? How much, how much is this part of the discourse in Ukraine or, or in Russia? It's, I have an example. Uh, so we were able to broadcast the film from Russia with cash in Ukraine uh, on one of the television channels. And um, it was a huge interest to the film. Um, because every week we talk uh, to Ukrainians uh, from the television screens as an investigative journalist and, and tell them how the corruption are being done and what schemes are being used in Ukraine. But this is some, something which showed our people that there are certain instruments uh, in the West that are being used to help our kleptocrats to take money out of, from Ukraine. And this was uh, this started a big debate whether uh, we are uh, have to go to the, for these values if they are sometimes are not being respected on the West. If we put so many lives um, um, during the revolution and uh, during the fight on the East just uh, to enter the EU and the Western society and community. Roman, what about in Russia? I, I'm very glad you've touched on this subject. Indeed. Uh, there is a uh, there is an outrage, which is uh, very very uh, tangible in uh, in Russia, with what's what's happening, to the extent that we've actually managed to use it for creative use it for creative purposes. When we just started our campaign with Ben, yes. we asked uh, Alex Navalny to ask his supporters, and we ask uh, Ukrainian. Uh, anti-corruption center to ask their supporters to tweet London politicians and um, had a bit of an avalanche of tweets coming from those, those two countries um, saying money stolen from my country is being uh, pillaged and is hidden in your properties. Stop it. And all sorts of variations of that theme. And uh, by the amount of, uh, well, first of all, we make sure so that the message got heard very quickly. Uh, but the, the other thing is uh, the uh, reaction was uh, uh, very strong. And uh, to some extent, you know, it is, uh, if you can put it into creative, uh, into, um, creative channel, it's good. But m normally it is, uh, um, bursts out as just another uh, outrage with a cynical West. Look, 
they have established those the, the democracies. They they trying to teach us democratic values. In fact, they're taking the money stolen out of, uh, from our countries, and everything flows to the West. Nothing come back comes back, and they're happy with this. This is uh, we've heard, uh, seen a lot of uh, comments like that when um, the film came out uh, in in Russia. From Russia to Cash was uh, obviously not going to be broadcasted by any of Russian. Uh, TV channels, so in, uh, for in, in uh, unprecedentedly, the uh, Channel 4 and Amos Pictures gave uh, the Anti-Corruption Foundation of Alex Navalny permission to uh, stream the film on their website. And the comments that we were getting uh, in the first few days were very much centered on, on that, how this uh, hypocritical West, look at this, you're just displaying another proof that this is all big hypocrisy, that they're there to exploit us. In fact, this brings me uh, back to the point that uh, Ben was making about uh, trying to feel as a, uh, each of you trying to feel as a, uh, one of those corrupt ministers and uh, bringing money to, to the West. After you've seen how easy it is done, after you've experienced the uh, efficiency of enablers, <laughs> you know, they, what what would be uh, what would be the thought that would be in, in your mind? I mean, this is a, this is amazing how uh, easy it is to park proceeds of crime, and if you are uh, a leader of a regime like this, like Putin, for example, well, you think you own the West after 15 years of exporting illegal gains into banks, into offshore companies, into financial system, into a, uh, into a world con controlled by the West. He is not, not, none of this is ever caught, none of this is ever confiscated. He feels like he owns that system. Mm -hmm. And that's why he is unable to do things that he is doing in Ukraine, and that's why he is doing things that he's doing in Syria, just because he now believes that the West will never, ever uh, catch him in, uh, in, in, in the financial flows. I mean, the, this is uh, the point where it you know, brings me to, uh, you know, if you assess the, uh, what was happening in the, in the last 15, 20 years from uh, uh, world politics pers perspective, I mean, we had an impression that we are bringing democracies to these countries, that we're uh, in, uh, encouraging civil society, that we're uh, nurturing democratic values in those countries, and we're plugging them in into the Western capitalist system. Let me tell you, we achieved only with the latter. We plugged them into the Western capitalist system. They flooded us with, with stolen money, and now they feel like they own us. So to me, it, it, is a, it is a threat to our national securities. Maybe less so in, uh, here uh, in, uh, in, in the United States, but look at Europe. Look at Europe where left and right, extreme left and right, is being funded by these illegal gains streaming out of uh, Russia, out of Ukraine, out of other countries. Look at the uh, uh, National Front, UKIP, Syriza. Uh, this is where the... Uh, this regime is, become, is becoming uh, aggressive, and it is posing an imminent uh, threat to democracy of Europe. I wonder if uh, Ben would like to talk a little bit about um, <clears throat> the soft points in the political system and 
in the UK and what, what has made the system so easy. And then I think we will, we will talk about the US. There's just one point I'd like to make mm -hmm. before getting on to that, which is I can hear the growth, which is wow, Russia, Ukraine, Nigeria, these places aren't colonies. We can't tell them what to do. They're going to steal their money. Well, what can we do about it? In Victorian London, there was an epidemic of street crime. Oliver Twists were running everywhere. Uh, robbery was happening nightly. Jewelry boxes were being stolen. And the government of Her Majesty the Queen could do nothing about it. There were simply too many urchins, it was said. There's nothing we can do about it. There are thousands of them. We cannot stop them. We can't recruit enough policemen to, to stop the burglars and the street thieves and the pickpockets and the gangs that would prowl Mayfair at night. Until uh, some very erudite officials said, hold on, we need to analyse the pattern of the crime. And it was decided that the way to stop this epidemic of, of uh, street crime was to make the handling of stolen goods a very serious offence. And the handling of stolen goods was made such a serious offence in Victorian London that nobody would take the, the sort of pocket watches and the, uh, the jewellery boxes and the, the sort of commodes stolen from the mansions of the rich. And that destroyed that epidemic uh, in uh, Dickensian London. And I think we have to think uh, uh, about the pattern of the crime here. And we obviously and sadly cannot stop uh, the, the elites of all the countries in the world uh, plundering uh, their states. But what we can do is uh, put very big sanctions and enforce our existing laws. These laws already exist, they're just not enforced, to, to stop their enablers in uh, the UK and also in the US uh, from, from doing this. It, it may sound simply because we're, sort of, we're, we're Europeans, and this is a sort of a, a European issue. But it's also an American issue. We could have made this film, and in fact, we'd quite like to, in New York, where you have exactly the same situation of uh, funds from uh, the poorer world uh, being laundered through property there. And exactly the same thing happens, and we could make a fun film uh, uh, about a narco lord from Mexico and his girlfriend that come to uh, LA to do exactly the same thing. In terms of tax havens and jurisdictions, uh, Britain and... Uh, her, her micro-colonies are, of course, the world's largest uh, tax haven. But the United States and her selection of, uh, uh, of, uh, of interesting islands as well are the world's fourth, much bigger than Luxembourg or, or Liechtenstein. So the United States is not very far behind Switzerland and, uh, uh, and Hong Kong uh, in, this, in this issue. So now just coming back to the issue of, like, numbers. And... Every year, about a trillion dollars through corruption leaves the poorer world, which we are uh, feeding uh, with our aid budgets, and lands in the, in the wealthier countries of the North. And as this money leaves, it, it leaves uh, a tragic result, which is 3.6 million people are dying every year from us, uh, the basic government services having been denied to them. So I think... Uh, that's something we could really, really do something about. It, this money is a competing force with American influence in, in the world. In London and in Paris and in Berlin and, and so many other lovely European capitals. Um, in, during the Cold War, when you didn't have capitalism from China and Russia, American cash was the only game in town. 
But now, especially with the British elite and the French elite and so on, uh, competing cash from China and uh, from Russia and, and the Arab world is buying the loyalties of the key professions that dominate power. Uh, lawyers, bankers, uh, hedge funders, this whole valet class, art dealers, these people depend far more on money from the East than they do, they do from the West. And that's one of the reasons that you're seeing uh, the UK be sort of missing in action in a lot of issues that America's trying to deal with, from China to uh, conflicts uh, in, in the Middle East. And our political systems are not, they're not built, they're built for, for being exporters of, of capital. They're not built to deal with a mass influx. And this is undermining uh, British foreign policy and it's undermining the, the transatlantic uh, bond. And I think that one thing that the United States, uh, in fact, two things the United States could do, one is to use your diplomats to alert uh, countries where there are elites in the, in the pay of uh, kleptocratic regimes. I think that's something that the US embassies could, could do a lot of work behind the scenes or, or leaking to alert people to. And another thing I think you could do is create a network where you can fund activists who can, can expose uh, these uh, complicated, very, very tricky, deliberately obscure uh, corruption devices. In Russia and Ukraine and, and elsewhere, it's no different in Sudan. The people who rule the country, they rule it not based on ideology, they're based on cash. And because their cash depends on its relationship with the Western financial system, you can open a new front, snipping and cutting and fighting against them by denying them access to the Western financial system without having to lift a finger against them in their own countries or their own jurisdictions. I think that's a, an interesting avenue to, to pursue. You know, I would say, uh, I'll add a little story about my own personal experience. I went to uh, Miami to do a little bit of work on this subject. It's a tough place to do research. And um, in, on North Beach, at the dead end of Hill, Hillendale Avenue, or Boulevard, where it dead ends in the sea, there are three 40-story apartment buildings there. And I got an appointment with a realtor who works within those buildings and only for those buildings and presented myself as who I am, a professor from a Midwest university looking to retire in Florida, although I have no intention of retiring in Florida. And, um, and I was, wanted to see some of the apartments. And it became very clear that he had never seen anyone like me before and that there is no one like me living in these apartments. And but I was lucky, and I did not ask him about Russia. Um, I did note that there was a Russian language newsletter for the apartment complex, and uh, offering all kinds of specialized services in the Miami Beach area. And uh, he told me that I was lucky because my husband was with me. We were lucky because uh, a client of his from Russia had called him on the Monday and told him you know, whatever his name was, I have to sell this apartment this week. And if you can't do it, I'll find somebody else to, to take the transaction. And he said, fortunately, we have very good clients in Colombia. 
and I have been able to sell the, the, the apartment. So you can see it because it's currently in between the uh, being sold and bought. Um, and I then said, you know, it's, uh, we're really, we, we love this, love this 360 view, 180 view of the beach. Um, do you work with mortgage brokers? He said, well, we've never sold an apartment here for anything but cash. <laughs> but I could try. <laughs> and this is three buildings. 40 stories in Miami. And this is the story of our cities, too. And I would say one of the things that's important to keep in mind is that when the Patriot, Patriot Act went through after 9-11, the sector that was not held responsible for reporting was real estate. They got an exemption, and that exemption has been renewed over and over again. So this is something that has been done at the national level uh, for other sectors in terms of reporting of suspicious activity. But the real estate sector is not liable to report in this country, even after 9-11. So I think it's a big story, absolutely not being covered. Um, but I would, would, and Charles Davidson, Julie Davidson, would have copies of this letter. There was a, a letter sent to the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network in March of 2015, copy of which I'm holding in my hand, but was signed by about 21 uh, various advocacy organizations to, to uh, the government, including Transparency International and so forth, asking them to eliminate this loophole. And that was March of this year. So I think it's very timely that we, that we really focus on it. And I think it's very important to underline what Ben said, that, that property has become the Bitcoin of money laundering. The difference is that when that, it's not Bitcoin, it's not virtual, it's yes. actual. And it is absolutely gutting the central portions of our major cities, whether it's San Francisco from Chinese money, or New York, the beginning of Russian and Chinese, or Miami, Latin American and Russian, it's a very significant problem, and it's coming to a neighborhood near you. Um, I just, in an age where lots of issues appear intractable, such as the consolidation of Putin's dictatorship or the rise of ISIS, this is something that we can do. We can close these loopholes and have a massive effect to the benefit of the promotion of, of democracy uh, world, worldwide. And it, moving on to that point about cities and how this is coming to, this is coming to a, a place near you. In the, the UK, we've had a sort of political earthquake uh, on, on the left. And uh, it's linked to this issue. Uh, after um, after we, we did the, the film, we took um, a petition to Parliament. And we got, around, we got about 50 MPs to, to sign this petition, and one of them was an, uh, an obscure MP called uh, Jeremy Corbyn. And this chap, who has since become leader of the Labour Party, based on young people who can't afford to buy houses and who feel priced out and pushed out of their inner cities. So it's very interesting that if you don't, uh, if you don't tackle this issue, uh, there could be um, certainly, uh, maybe even in the United States, a danger of a sort of socialist rise coming 
uh, in various forms in various countries. Or a far right rise, because they yes. meet on the other side of that circle, for sure. Morris, Natalie, you have any comments before we open it up for questions? Um, I was just also going to add the bad side, uh, the phenomenal which it can lead for in the meaning of uh, um, high prices of uh, property and real estate. Um, I was just recently in London doing um, a continuation, let's say, the story uh, about uh, Ukrainian politicians and oligarchs laundering money in London through the real estate market. Um, and uh, I filmed uh, these uh, mansions and uh, luxury apartments and um, penthouses in London. But also I met uh, uh, Roman and uh, he uh, showed me the phenomenon um, which is called Lights Out of London, uh, which means that um, people, foreigners who buy this property don't actually live there. It's just a parking of their money. And so we were walking by the streets which were partially empty. There were no mothers with kids. Um, um, you know, there were no life, no local business. And this is something which can happen to any city, including even New York or Miami or wherever. And, and this, is, this is sad and it, 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 can, it could happen um, if it's not stopped. So our film got about a million views in the UK. We generated a media storm. We got the prime minister to give a speech about it, and we've had uh, figures from left and right sort of compete over the ideas. And I think just an interest in how you can promote this uh, issue worldwide is that we hit on this this spot linking a terrible foreign policy crisis to a terrible domestic crisis. And people f uh, understood through this film that, in part, one of the reasons that they weren't able to afford property in London, and of course the London prices raised the prices uh, nationwide, was because property was uh, had been perverted out of being a normal, healthy, functioning market that rewards uh, strivers and earners and had become a system which was rewarding, was rewarding uh, criminals from abroad. From that please. perspective, the message to the US audience is uh, don't wait until it becomes too late, like in London. <laughs> <laughs> don't wait until you have a dysfunctional capital where young people cannot afford to live, people who, and in fact, people who work in the capital cannot afford to live uh, in the capital, period. Don't wait until the prices in your large cities are being skewed upwards by foreign criminals trying to uh, store their, 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 their proceeds of their crime in the, in the real estate. Unfortunately, it became, it, it gone then bad, that bad in London, but uh, the message is don't let it happen in your country. I, I, I cast my eye at some of the younger people in the audience, and I think they already feel the, the pressure of rising property prices in, 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 uh, in, in Washington, D.C. But I would say, and I'm sure, Roman, that you would agree with me, it's not just the problem of foreign criminals. The problem is that... Uh, these criminals are one and the same or are at least in cahoots with governments. Yes. And this is, part, this is, this is, a, this is why it is a national security threat. It's why it's a foreign policy crisis, that they, they see the purchase of these properties, the extensive money laundering, as an additional means of serving two goals, their personal uh, rights, interests, and the state's rights. Uh, 
for example, the head of the Russian mafia who was arrested in uh, Spain and then got released from prison is living in St. Petersburg under the direct protection of the Russian Secret Service. Mm. And th this, is, this is a unified command, unlike us, where we don't have a unified command. And in this situation, we need to think about what is happening uh, as with the undermining of our institutions. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I was just addressing the point no, no, that I we were making you. previously about Lights Out London yes. and how bad yes. the phenomenon got in, in this particular uh, place. But uh, by, by all means, it's not just bringing foreign criminals. It's bringing their, uh, their uh, morals, their uh, absence of lo uh, law, their illegality. It is uh, uh, what you know, the towers of secrecy are doing in, uh, in New York. Uh, this, this is a, uh, the, the influence is not only on the, on the uh, price level. That's it's right. eroding our system uh, from inside. That's right, absolutely. Well, I'm happy to open the floor to questions. Uh, the lady in the back had the first hand. Could you, could you introduce yourselves and, and keep your comments to questions? 48 minutes. 40, 40, 40. Okay, I just wanted to know because it's Wednesday at 3 o'clock. Tomorrow. Tomorrow at 3 o'clock at the museum. <laughs> it's well worth watching. In the very back? The lady at the very back? Hello, um, I'm Julia Sibley from Advancing Human Rights. Uh, I was wondering if the panelists could address the connection between corruption and human rights abuses. I'm thinking particularly of the Magnitsky case, but also beyond that case, um, maybe some other cases that we haven't seen in the news. Thank you. So the connection between corruption and human rights abuses. Well, the connection between corruption and human rights abuses is a trillion dollars leaves poorer countries to uh, richer countries every year and kills 3.6 million people. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it, it, we need to move much, it's on such a huge level that we need to really recast the way we think about it. Not as individual stories, but actually 3.6 million people a year is enormous. That is many, many multiples of the Syrian war. I would, I would also add and just say that uh, in the case of Russia, uh, and in the case of Ukraine, you're dealing with countries that have very significant positive human capital. They have the capability to build democratizing countries that live according to the rule of law. If they have elites who don't want to do that because they're stealing, those elites can only do this through repression. They have to use repression. It's the only way. So it's not just a public health crisis. It's a crisis of government. It's a price, crisis of the future of every young person who graduates mm -hmm. with an advanced degree who could go on and establish a business if only they were given the chance, and they are not. May I add to this? Um, in our investigative anti-corruption television program every week, uh, what we try to do is to make this connection between corruption and abuse of human rights. And uh, when we say that this amount of money was stolen, we just, uh, we just put a number um, or an example where it should be going. So, for example, there's um, also a house in London which was bought by a Ukrainian oligarch. It costed 50 million pounds. 
and we were just made an example to, so people understand that this is a two-year budget of a city of Ushgorod, which is a huge city on the west of Ukraine. So in this way, people understand that it's not just a mansion or a house to, to, to have a, as a residential. It's a huge amount of money which were taken probably from a budget of, of, of a people. The, um, excuse me. I wonder if you could address the question of where the onus for establishing what is corrupt money and what isn't uh, lies, especially with these enablers. If it's a real estate broker, you know, how are they expected to determine what would be a corrupted uh, source of cash? Because certainly not every dollar that comes from Russia or Ukraine, um, you know, is is stolen. So where where would you? Or what would you expect of these enablers, or other than the law that, that Karen mentioned about opening up the transparency and reporting a little bit, um, of what, what could you do to uh, improve that? Thanks. Well, currently in British law, the moment that you suspect money laundering, you're supposed to alert the authorities. And there is an actual law which is uh, uh, effectively unenforced. And in uh, our film, we, we made sure that uh, sort of uh, uh, our, our two heroes here made it very, very, very clear that there was no doubt in the agent's mind that the money was laundered. And we were testing to see um, if they would follow the letter of the law and report it. And uh, they did not. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's a case of just British law being enforced. And I think that the system is the owner. The onus already squarely puts it on the the realtor to refer the case uh, upwards to to investigators. I don't think we need to sort of invent anything, anything new. We just need to strengthen what's already there. Um, I would also add to that that I have, in my experience, uh, many few cases at least where I see that uh, the Western financial institutions didn't make a proper due diligence. Uh, in terms of checking the political exposed persons and their close associates, the PEPs. Um, a, a lot of cases when uh, these people or their close um, uh, me- me- uh, family members were able to buy a luxury property, for example, in the UK, um, uh, when the in- investigation by FBI was undertaken um, against this person. So I don't know if it's a lack of communication or interest, but this is what happened, and it, it's not the incident, not only once. Tom Weldy. Hey, Thomas Weldy. I work in anti-money laundering compliance here in D.C. Um, just commenting on the onus, um, one thing that I think I've noticed and probably other people in the industry have noticed is that these shell companies in offshore jurisdictions make it very hard to do our job and to do our due diligence. Uh, we have an investigation. If you come up with an offshore company involved, there's, I mean, the wheels very quickly stop turning. Um, so I just kind of want to reiterate that point and, you know, from my point of view. And I also want to know, um, while you're here, or have you had the opportunity to talk to any U.S. lawmakers? Or, um, and maybe whether you have or whether you haven't, are there any kind of developments in the U.K. or the U.S. that you think uh, might take a bite out of this? And do a little help. Well, the development that immediately comes to mind is the Joint Ministerial Council, uh, which is a complicated way to call a summit between 
um, the UK Prime Minister and the uh, leaders of the 14 offshore exotic territories that are uh, known as UK protectorates. It happened two weeks ago in London, and uh, our coalition addressed and uh, wrote a letter to, to Mr. Cameron urging him to move uh, and uh, demand uh, um, realization of a plan that was conceived first and um, originally in 2013 on transparency of uh, these offshore jurisdictions. As a result, which is, you know, probably not uh, yet time to pat ourselves on the shoulder, but at least recognition of the problem. And uh, as a result, we have the first ever declaration by all the 14 offshore territories uh, of intent to uh, transfer to the UK-style transparency and uh, have registers UK of uh, ultimate beneficial owners in all the jurisdictions, including BVI, Caymans, Jersey, Guernsey, and uh, Gibraltar. Well, that's in, in terms of the steps. Just like two practical little policies that we've been, been pushing. Because obviously in our campaign in the UK, we've not been pushing to sort of end corruption or sort of trans transform the, the world system. We've been pushing these two very simple points. One is that you shouldn't be able to buy UK property anonymously. And you should only be able to buy UK property if it can be established beyond any reasonable doubt who the person is. And that means uh, not being able to buy property through offshore registered shell companies and just a uh, and um, you know, meaning the rules that already exist for, for UK citizens to be uh, applied to, to all. And the second point is, it's just that metaphor of stolen goods and the handling of stolen goods is that we've been pushing for uh, to actually enforce existing legislation and putting high fines and uh, prison sentences on people who, who are handling uh, money which is... Uh, stolen from abroad. An interesting kind of metaphor would be that lots of these existing laws were in abeyance before the financial crisis in the financial sector and have been brought in uh, uh, afterwards on other aspects of, uh, of more domestic money laundering. Well, Ben is absolutely right on the subject. The laws are there and uh, they're just not being enforced. The anti-heroes of the film, uh, all of them, for uh, a simple, f uh, simple fact of not reporting uh, an incident of money laundering that they, they came across with. In fact, they came across with a knowledge of this. It's not even reasonable uh, uh, grounds to yeah. suspect, as one of the QCs would uh, emphasize in, in, in the film. For not reporting that, uh, if it were uh, a real purchase, they would be uh, looking at up to five years in, in jail. Uh, moreover, three out of five aided and abated my character, Boris, by uh, either tipping him off on uh, lawyers or uh, promising to put him in touch with Jersey Trust uh, administrators <coughs> and separate lawyers who can channel his money out of Russia into Jersey and then into England. Well, for that, you're looking at uh, up to 14 years in jail. So the, the laws are there. It, uh, it's that they're not being enforced. Margaret Whitehead. Margaret Whitehead, I'm a trustee of the Institute, and thank you for this very dynamic uh, presentation. Uh, Karen, since you're the world expert on Putin and the oligarchs and the KGB and their power relations, I wonder if we could go back for a moment um, um, and you will describe the power relations between them and the way all of that 
has the effect that we are talking about this morning? Oh, well, l let's, just, let's just focus on two bankers, two KGB bankers who were in Vienna in the 1980s, Akimov and Medvedev, Alexander Medvedev. Today they're on the board of Gazprom and Rosneft. They moved the money, the, the, they moved the Russian money out of the CPSU accounts. They helped to bring down the system. They started to establish their base and they have looted the system without fail. And it, and, and the, um, it, is, it is that kind of person that, that, that has fostered, promoted, brought Putin along. Of course, he doesn't need any one person anymore, but certainly they were senior to Putin um, at that time, and he was the one who was brought along by them. So. It is, it is fundamental to understand, in my opinion, it is fundamental to understanding this system, that it is a unified kleptocratic project. Of course, there are elites who are fighting each other, and, and one always is very interested in that. But that there is no doubt that I think that my understanding of the roots of this system makes me quite worried that the kind of project that they are interested in building and sustaining is, of course, one that serves their narrow interests, but also serves a greater interest, which is basically, as one of the KGB generals who wrote his, his uh, memoir said, we, uh, we lost in the struggle against the West because we were forced to fight with the ideology of Marxism. We will, we will be able to win against the West when we use their tools to undermine them. And I think this is exactly what the larger project has been and is. Of course, greed will inevitably get in the way and slow them down. But uh, it, it is a serious, it is a very serious threat, in my opinion. Uh, Nancy Lubin. No, Nancy. Thank you. I'm Nancy Lubin, president of JNA Associates. Um, and I have two quick questions, but first I just wanted you to know, Karen, that well, I lived back in back in the nineteen seventies, lived for a long time in Central Asia and three in Uzbekistan. Three of the Central Asians I knew uh, for the last two decades have been working in real estate in Miami. So if you want to beat out that Colombian drug lord, <laughs> they're there for you. And they're so wealthy. It's great. Um, but the two questions, one, um, really more domestically in Ukraine for the last 25 years, a whole number of us, and Karen wrote a great book, but have been documenting um, for, for over two decades how international assistance, as well as U.S. assistance, has been so backfiring and really deepening corruption and making things so much worse in Central Asia, among other places, than they might have been otherwise. And yet I go to so many talks around town uh, particularly one on Ukraine just last week, where um, all these institutions are talking about the wonderful work they've done and all the wonderful changes they've made. So I just was curious from you to hear, are there areas where, um, what, or what areas have we really had a good impact, and in what areas, in your view, um, has it really hurt? And the second, I guess, um, I'm, I guess I'm just curious about London when you say all the, all the legislation is in place, it's just a matter of enforcement. 
But then you mentioned <laughs> the extent to which um, companies can buy anonymously. Is that legal currently that offshore companies can buy real estate anonymously? Uh -huh. And is that something that you guys are working to change? Mm -hmm. Or or are all these people breaking the law and not just breaking the spirit of the law? Uh, no, you're, it's currently legal to buy a property anonymously through an offshore shell company. It's just the moment that you suspect money laundering, you're supposed to, to refer it to the authorities. So when you don't do that, you're breaking the law. So out of the 30, almost 37,000 properties in London that have been purchased through uh, offshore uh, shell companies, I think a very high uh, amount of those transactions would have broken uh, the law. If you read the beautiful piece by Ed Caesar in The New Yorker uh, earlier this year, for uh, what is it, eight years, uh, nobody knew uh, in London who owns the second biggest palace after Buckingham Palace. And that was absolutely legal. And when Ed came to, came to me asking to help with this uh, story, uh, he said that the local council uh, told him that uh, he shouldn't be writing. The local council told him that uh, over a beer, personally, it was Putin's, uh, and you shouldn't be digging in here. Go write another story. But just to give a, a figure on this, which is the, uh, the last time that these figures were collected in 2011, the British government put a very conservative figure that around $100 billion a year was being laundered through uh, London property and surrounding property. When we made uh, our film, the National uh, Crime Agency estimated that many multiples of that were in fact being uh, laundered through London property. Mm. So you're looking at over 300 uh, a billion, billion a year, which is an enormous amount of money. And there's been recent re uh, research, um, very, very interesting, done by uh, some very bright analysts at Deutsche Bank, a company which causes problems in this area, which have... Um, <laughs> which has shown that uh, Britain's mysterious trade deficit, which uh, doesn't actually fit with how the economy is behaving, uh, in fact uh, doesn't exist. And the economy doesn't have a trade deficit because all of that corruption is discounted. So we actually don't really understand how our economies now work because of all this sort of shadow <coughs> money uh, coming in and out, let alone the fact that this money's not taxed and the UK is having a, a serious fiscal crunch and austerity measures at the moment. And then update on Ukraine. Um, yeah, I would really love uh, to share um, some of the good news which also ex exists. Um, so for now, the situation uh, in Ukraine in the, mid in the minion of struggling for um, a better future and democracy is like that. Well, on, on one hand, we have um, a, a government which is uh, politicians of yesterday still, not today. We are still hoping them to grow. Um, which are made a lot of fortune and their political um, reputation um, and um, a basis on dealing with Russia and being uh, very, um, um, uh, how do you call it? Uh, and and they made their money on connections with Russia and their business as well. And from the other hand, we have a civil society, uh, which is mostly activists and journalists, who are being for a long time uh, supported by the Western uh, organizations and, and the U.S. organizations too. 
Um, and so for the last year, for example, for example, uh, we've been able to um, lobby as activists and, um, and uh, to lobby for adoption of such laws as the open of public registries. Some of them are more open than in the UK, for example. We don't have to pay uh, for an information about the ownership of a real estate and property or the, um, uh, or the ownership of a companies. Um, and um, and this, is, this is really helps because then we take uh, official income of a, of, of a uh, person, a politician or an official, and then we show that he has a luxury goods as in mansions and uh, luxury cars. And this is something which already cre creates a crime um, um, in Ukraine, and so it can be investigated. But who will be investigating that if, if the law enforcement are now are not working? Then, on the other hand, uh, it, uh, Ukraine created and adopted a law of cre about creation of a national anti-corruption bureau, uh, which is now just uh, just being uh, established, uh, and uh, it has uh, uh, they have now detectives. So, with the help of uh, of the Western experts, um, they are teaching and studying how to investigate big political uh, cor and economical corruption. The two two gentlemen in the back. Let's take both of your questions and and this gentleman here. Let's take these three questions, and then we'll have to wrap up by one thirty. A quick technical: Have you ever? Have you ever seen a server-to-server -server banking transfer rather than going through, you know, SWIFT or some of the other international uh, things? And second, a policy, uh, what do you do when you have a situation like Ann Applebaum described about a month ago where the top, um, the top kleptocrat in the country, in, a, in say, in at some Central European republics, is actually, has actually donated so much to Transparency International that he kind of owns it? I equally technical, how about uh, the use of lines of credit, which some of the cartels uh, have begun to favor, and uh, investments in um, uh, startups or seed money for IPOs and things? Thanks. Uh, wanting to Let's just take this one more question. Clark Gascoigne here with the uh, FACT Coalition. We're a group of over 100 organizations here in the U.S. working to curtail money laundering, uh, increase corporate transparency, and curtail offshore tax abuse. And I just wanted to address the if you guys could address the, the, the U.S. here as the number one place for kleptocrats to open anonymous companies to launder their profits, according to the World Bank, and, um, and the second easiest place in the world for money launderers and terrorists to open anonymous companies. Um, what that says about the U.S. and where and, you know, how the U.S. is viewed with this regard in, in countries like Ukraine and, and the U.K., which have been actually trying to do some stuff on this. Well, I think that... The United Kingdom had the misfortune of uh, being dragged so far down it that there's now a lot of awareness of this issue. We've managed to get it really discussed very regularly in the press. It's been debated in it's been debated in Parliament. We've got traction on this. This is now uh, attempts to stop um, anonymous property uh, ownership are now uh, apparently uh, policies of the Labour Party and of the, the Liberal Democrats. So we've got some, some, energy, got some energy there. On the issue of, Amnesty, uh, of, of Transparency International, I think this issue is huge. I think this issue is just so much bigger than even one of the biggest uh, organisations in the world. And also, just to make a direct appeal to you here, I think this is very much a Conservative issue, which is about finding ways that 
you can strengthen the West, uh, really promote Western power, defend and make and regenerate, capital, uh, regenerate capitalism, and also to find ways to, to reduce kind of aid budgets and a culture of dependence that uh, has emerged in, in poorer countries uh, on American and on, 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 British, on British aid. Uh, I'm, I think that it, we're just at the beginning of a journey of thinking through all the places that this, that this goes, and uh, we want to work more on this in the US and kind of find, uh, and find allies, and we want, we want other people to take this, this course uh, uh, away from us and to sort of take it in all different directions uh, here. <laughs> Well, the answer is, I think, to some extent, to all three questions, is that we need to be more vigilant, we need to be more cautious, and uh, the uh, procedures we employ should, uh, should change. Um, the money coming into IPOs, coming into uh, private equity, coming into um, UK properties or um, NGOs' budgets or, or uh, political parties' budgets, they need to be all... Um, examined in a much better, uh, much more efficient way and what we, with much better precision. And first step to do this <coughs> is to take the uh, anonymity, take the secrecy away from offshore companies. Natalie? I absolutely agree. And uh, offshore um, anonymity is used not only in uh, purchasing uh, real estate, but also in in contracting, in governmental purchases, and so on. So it, it is a huge layer which is covering a big, big corruption. I think we have time for one more. Andre? <coughs> I have a couple of observations. Uh, one, uh, the very fact that so much money going to London, uh, Miami, uh, San Francisco, Liechtenstein, Luxembourg, and so on, is the, some kind of demonstration that it's not the lack of rule of law in those places, but the, the very fact that rule of law exists in those places. Otherwise, money would not go there. At least it's clearly a demonstration of a huge difference between the level of rule of law in those places and those places outside of those cities. So that is why uh, we can certainly talk and think about what you are doing, how this additional money could destroy these rule of law existing in these places aftermath. But at the very first step, and for very first glance, is definitely a demonstration of very high level of rule of law, relatively high level of rule of law in those places. Um, I it's disagree. A, it's, it's demonstrating a first, property it's a, rights. It's sorry? It's demonstrating uniquely one dimension, which is property rights. It's, it's not it's, demonstrating the three dimensions that make up rule of law and that make up... Uh, uh, property rights is a basic element, the basic uh, fundamentals of rule of law. So that is why it's a demonstration that you can... You can defend your property. You can defend yourself. That is why the Russian oligarchs prefer to have their uh, disputes decide in London, but not in Moscow or not in Pyongyang. That's a very big demonstration of their preferences. 
So they just we need to think about this one. And the other one, uh, Ben, uh, concerning your uh, some kind of example uh, about the Victorian England. You know what is the difference between Victorian England and today's world? Because, because in Victorian, uh, Victorian England, jurisdiction of uh, British authorities were over British islands. But to, and that is why British authorities as well as British society are very, very much interested in some kind of putting down crime on the British islands. In this case, uh, we have a distribution of benefits and costs. Benefits are going to Britain or to England. The cost of getting those money are left in Russia, Ukraine, or any other, other place. So that is why to apply your example, the kind of Victorian examples to the current world, you need to expand the concept of rule of law from national jurisdiction to the global jurisdiction. So that is why the kind of uh, British law or Luxembourg law or Miami law or whatever should be expanded beyond national borders and actually to take over the whole world. I'm not think that it's absolutely impossible, but just if you're really seriously thinking about uh, some kind of deal with this particular problem, you need to think about the concept of global rule of law. In some sense, it could be similar to evolution of human rights law, some kind of the humanitarian intervention in some other places in defense of human rights in the one of the dimensions that you have in your mind. So that is why it might be possible to think about this so-called rule of law intervention in other jurisdictions to defend the rule of law in those places. Nevertheless, the very concept should be slightly different. And that is why if you're thinking about some kind of how to deal with this issue, it is to think about the some kind of creating or developing global rule of law. Andre, I think that uh, it's a, a great idea uh, of creating this kind of uh, international law, but it will take enormous amount of time. And before this happens, what we can do today is lead by example. The reason why these criminals want to buy London properties is because they like them. They want to come to London. It's easy, it's protected, they know it, and they want to come to London. So therefore, if we change, for example, in, in, uh, in the UK, the rules, and ask all the offshore companies that want to own any assets onshore to disclose their uh, beneficial owners, if we extend uh, uh, the, the rule of law to cover the instances where they would be given us incorrect information or any other abuses of, of, of this uh, system, then we can put this forward in front of everybody. In fact, if we can put forward this recommendation in front of the Global Anti-Corruption Summit in London uh, in, 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 uh, in the next July, and put it in front of all the global leaders saying this is what you can do, and uh, you never know. Maybe that is, is an easier way. If everybody accepts this kind of system, maybe it's an easier way to, to police. You know, clean out your own house before you look at the, at the globe. But just to, that, that point about costs, and obviously when you're talking about costs that, that do fall on London or, or on Miami, of sort of people being priced out of the property market or of the declining values and 
trustworthiness of institutions. But obviously, that, that's nowhere near comparable to what's happening in, in Russia or Ukraine. And just to sort of end on a, on a personal anecdote, I was truly heartbroken when I visited hospitals and sort of camps in Russia and, uh, and Ukraine and saw people dying in agony from there being no retrovirals and no uh, TB, TB drugs. You know, watching the human costs and the pain of corruption and realising that the cash that could have saved these people's lives or saved them from pain had ended up in, in my city and had been handled by people from my country uh, to enrich themselves and to create uh, blood mansions. And one of the things we're trying to do is to try and show that link in the way that one of the most successful campaigns of all time, which was the Blood Diamond campaign showed that link between uh, the horrors of West Africa and the jewels that people were wearing in, uh, in, Western, uh, in Western Europe and in North America. Natalie, did you have a final comment? You know, I, just in closing the very interesting session, I, I want to, to come back to this point of the place of this small, seemingly small story in this bigger picture. U.S. sanctions, sanctioned individuals, and sanctioned companies. Clearly, it's the case that Western governments are watching the flow of money out of Russia and Ukraine very carefully. The one sector that they don't have a handle on is real estate, because there is no requirement to list the beneficial owner. And the moment something is bought in Miami or New York, and it is then sold at a slight profit, undoubtedly, it's clean. And it can then participate in IPOs. It, that money can participate in the purchase of shares in any uh, US uh, stock. And no one knows where it's going. All we know is that it's coming out of bank accounts in New York. <coughs> It is a really a very serious <coughs> loophole that I hope people will think about. And in doing so, go see this really fun film tomorrow. There'll be a reception afterwards. You'll really enjoy it and think about it and talk about it. So thank you very much to the panel.